Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 289th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Camila Elliott. Camila is the CEO and founder of Collective Wealth Partners, an independent RIA based in Atlanta, Georgia, that oversees nearly $25 million in assets under management for almost 175 client households. What's unique about Camila, though, is how she and her partners built an independent advisory firm comprised entirely of black CFP professionals and dedicated to supporting the creation of wealth for BIPOC and other underserved communities with the model that simply charges them for advice even if they don't have investable assets, or at least not yet. In this episode, we talk in depth about how, after years of working in an environment where she saw firsthand how ultra-high net worth clients keep and grow their wealth and the lack of diversity amongst those clients, Camila decided to build a practice that focused on providing holistic planning to communities of color with emerging wealth. How Camila and her partners serve their clients collectively with a team approach where each team member focuses on different areas of specialized expertise, such as one on employee benefits, another that focuses on tax planning, and a third that focuses on equity compensation. And why Camille and her partners feel that they can better serve their clients as advisors of color because they have a deeper understanding of both the cultural competencies necessary to serve different communities and the values those communities want to see represented in their investment and financial planning recommendations. We also talk about why Camila intentionally shifted her career focus to build an independent practice after years of working with clients and realizing how few looks like her. How despite working hard, Camila was frustrated by not receiving the recognition and compensation she felt she deserved and ultimately decided to follow the advice she gives her clients by advocating for herself, which in the end meant leaving her prior firm. And how Camila explains the value of hiring a financial advisor to her clients, as many in communities of color have never had an advisor before, by likening it to hiring a personal trainer as financial advisors help their clients to stay focused, motivated, and accountable. And be certain to listen to the end, where Camila shares how she was surprised by how much time it takes to manage aspects of her business, like compliance technology and just having the time to learn new industry information in order to build a successful firm. How Camila now recognizes risk and fear are part of growth and wishes she could have taken more risks early in her career. And why Camila believes in the importance of taking multiple career steps across different domains in the financial service industry that builds on one's expertise, especially leadership skills, over time, even if that means having a more circuitous career, because not everything in life is linear. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Camila Elliott. Welcome, Camila Elliott, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you coming out and joining us on the on the podcast today and 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 talking and think about, you know, to me, a lot of interesting themes of both, you know, passed through the industry. I know you you've had a, I think at least a little bit of a unique one relative to industry standards, having spent a lot of time in a large asset manager before ultimately going out to the independent channels. You know, most of us historically kind of landed in, you know, I use like insurance sales or investment sales at a brokerage firm before before building further in the industry. And and you you started a, a different kind of path. You also have, I, I think, a, a very unique advisory firm today of what, to my knowledge, at least is, is like the, the most 
black CFPs at one boutique firm in the in the country in an industry where most firms struggle to have you know one advisor who is not white to have multiple advisors <laughs> of diversity at a single firm is unfortunately still actually a very unique thing in the industry today and so you know just to me there there's this interesting intersection that I'm I'm curious if if you see as well of both you know having a uniquely diverse firm and having followed a little bit of a at least what I would think of as a non-traditional path in coming into the industry and growing into the industry to begin with that you know I I wonder if that's reflective of some of the industry's broader ongoing challenges in in diversity of advisors and diversity of CFP professionals I totally agree I think my non-traditional background, Michael, has given me access to a really wide network of people. You know, it created a very diverse community. So when we're looking to build this firm, you know, I already had connections um, from people who were at larger firms, smaller firms, so we can be able to build what we have at Collective Wealth Partners. So I, I think to to get us started, just talk to us a little bit about your advisory firm, uh, as you've said, Collective Wealth Partners, like tell us a bit about the firm as it exists today so we, we kind of understand the current picture of, of where you are and what you're doing. Sure. So Collective Wealth Partners is an SEC-registered RIA. We are headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, but we do have advisors throughout the country. So basically how we got started, you know, we have all been in the industry for pretty much over 10 years the entire team, to your point, Michael, we all have experience at larger firms. So one of my colleagues spent time at U.S. Trust, one spent time at Merrill Lynch, one even had some time at Lehman, right? So we all collectively Brief brought- Brief time, perhaps, unfortunately. <laughs> yes. But, mm-hmm. yes. So we all brought a big firm perspective, and then we all transitioned to smaller RIAs, even the, some work at broker-dealers. So we come with a really diverse perspective. Our firm, you know, we're called Collective Wealth Partners because we all have different experiences and expertise and focus areas. And collectively, with this knowledge, we can serve our clients in the best way. We're working to work with our clients in a very team approach. So we have someone that is an expert on healthcare benefits and how to pick the best employee benefits for your firm and loves to dig deep into that. We have someone that loves QuickBooks and small business planning and reporting and how to make sure they're utilizing all the best reports and analysis to look at profitability. And then a lot of my clients, um, Michael, are tech clients. So I've worked to you know increase my knowledge on equity compensation and RSUs and ISOs and how to best serve them from an investment and a tax planning perspective. So we brought all of this expertise together to work with communities that, you know, that tend to be underserved, but do have emerging wealth. So talk to us a little bit more about that. Like, just Who is the community that you're ultimately trying to serve? Sure. Most of our clients are Black, East Asian, Latino. I would say 90% of our clients are of color. We also um, have a very large segment of the of our client population that is LGBTQIA and understanding the values they have from an investment perspective and a planning perspective. So our book of clients is really different from most firms. 
our age range is really between 30 and 50. So we definitely cater and serve more so to the Henrys, the high earners, not rich yet, helping them earlier in their careers from a planning and investment perspective. And we help to grow with them as their career grows, as their wealth grows, and help them with you know asset retention and building more of that generational wealth that these communities typically were not privy to. So help us understand the the business model then. Like just like what do you charge and how are you structuring this if you're working mostly with younger clients as you know, as the, the industry now calls them Henry's, so higher earners not rich yet, which usually means like not necessarily sizable portfolios for assets under management. So what is the what does the business model look like? Like are you still doing AUM work or is it a blended fee model or something different entirely? It is a blended. So we are a fee-based firm. So we charge assets under management, but the vast majority of our revenue, Michael, is through financial planning revenue. So we charge a fee. we, We have different models, but most of our clients, we charge one holistic fee. And it includes a financial plan. It includes investment advisory. We even, for many of our clients, include tax preparation as well into their fee. So anything that they have financial in nature, taxes, investments, help with their retirement accounts, health benefits, we cover under one holistic financial planning fee. And what's a, what's a typical fee or how do you determine what that fee is? Our typical fee, because uh, we believe in transparency, we actually have on our website, our typical fee for an individual is 4000 and for a married couple or partner couple is 6000 And then for... Business owners, we charge starting at 10000 a year because we're working not only on building their personal wealth, but we're reviewing their business, looking at their business financials, business retirement plan, et cetera. And then, so you, you said for a lot of your clients, that's a holistic fee of planning and advisory and even tax preparation in there as well. So is that literally like just all, like everything bundled under one? Correct. Tax preps included, there's not a separate fee, whatever their portfolio size is, that's just covered under it. There's no separate AUM fee for, for the portfolio. Correct. Yeah. So if their assets are less than 400,000, we typically charge that financial planning of four and six. But if they have assets north of 400,000, then we start to move to the AUM model. Okay. And then how do you price on the AUM model? The highest we charge is 1.2. And then we have a a tiered structure, 1%, 0.8%. So typically most of our AUM clients the fee is is one percent. Okay, and so and so I guess I can kind of see the math. Like by the time you're at four hundred thousand dollars, your first tier of, of AUM fees is right in that four to six thousand dollar range of where the exactly the planning fee was. So so does that mean like it it literally shifts? Like if I come to the firm with five or six hundred thousand dollars, and so like then I'm just going to be charged an AUM fee that may add up to be a little bit more than four to six thousand dollars at that point. But the planning fee goes away or or do they run in parallel? Like it's, you know, planning fee plus AUM. At that point, the planning fee goes away. And so the AUM is what covers your entire fee at Collective Wealth Partners. Okay. But it sounds like in practice, a very significant portion of your clients actually are not at the AUM threshold because you're working with younger folks. So mm-hmm. planning fee ends up being the thing that that 
dominates the offering in practice. Exactly. So one of the things, we have a much higher assets under advisement than assets under management. Because to your point, for many of our clients, most of their significant wealth is in employer plans. Right. Right. So if their 401k is at a Fidelity or a Vanguard or a T-Row, I'm providing investment recommendations and support, but we're not managing it internally. So we have to be a little bit more creative as to how do we structure compensation, knowing that we are providing advice, but we the AUM isn't isn't really available. Now, in practice, does that further filter into the fee schedule structure? Like, do you do you do you charge an AUA fee on all the assets that are being advised upon, or if they're if they cross the threshold into the AUM side, the AUM is is still solely like the actual M, Correct. like discretionary managed M part. Exactly. One of the things that, you know, is a little bit different for, our firm, for many of our clients, we are their first advisor they've ever had. Perhaps the first person in their family to ever have a financial advisor. And so one of the things we wanted to make is make the fees very easy to understand because we do say like, I know that some people do like a percentage of income and a percentage of net worth, and that's how they charge their clients. But we didn't want to have too many, I would say, fee calculations. We wanted to make it very easy for them to understand, very, you know, it doesn't require to use an Excel spreadsheet (laughs) pretty much, right? Right. You can pretty much easily figure it out. We, we talked about it, but we wanted to keep it easier because we didn't want the, you know, the the calculation of the fee or the lack of understanding to be an impediment. We want to make sure that people, you know, didn't have hesitation in working with our firm. And, and it is something new for many people to pay for advice, right? I think we're used to yep. paying for our CPA. We're used to paying for a personal trainer. But for many communities of color, more specifically, paying for advice is very, very new. And we wanted to keep the fee calculation, you know, very, very simple. Interesting. So, so it sounds like it's 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 almost a conscious, like I, you know, I I don't want to frame this the, the wrong way. Like I, some people would say, look, if you're advising all of these assets that are held away, but you're doing all this advising work, like you should charge an AUA fee. You're quote unquote leaving money on the table if you're not expanding your fee to capture all the areas that you're advising. And it sounds like your your framework just comes out a little bit differently of saying, like, look, we're going to have a minimum fee. I know this reasonably covers the time it takes to do all the stuff we're doing for the client. And so that will be enough to cover whatever it is. I don't need to separately separately charge for AUA. And it just gets really simple and straightforward. Like it's $4,000 for an individual, it's $6,000 for a couple. And at the point you're managing $400,000 or more with us, you know, you'll have an advisory fee that will offset that planning fee. Exactly. Even for me and my prior firm and some of my clients moved over with me is that we're seeing, you know, that transition happen, right? That they leave an employer, you know, they take their 401k with them. Then now we invested and we've switched them from that financial planning fee to the AUM fee. And you know, this next year, this new generation, this, these millennials, and I'm close to millennial, Michael, not, not, not quite, and Gen Z, they're very transient with employment, right? So it isn't the old model of you're waiting until, you know, 15 years to get that 401k, right? It's probably three to four years <laughs> at this point. And so with us as their trusted advisor, we, we do have a belief that, you know, we, we will be able to pull those assets over or under in-house, you know, once they do make that shift. Okay. And so how many 
like clients or AUM or AUA, I don't know how you how you measure or think about the the firm, like how just how many clients and and what's the asset base there at this point? Right now our just our calculation with the advisors that are here now, our AUM is about twenty-five million. When the other advisor joins, we'll probably be around thirty-five. If you think about assets under advisement in terms of employer plans, to your um, earlier question, we're probably close to like sixty million. We do have uh, right now, in terms of households, we have about one hundred and seventy-five households. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and just in I guess in practice, like how does revenue break down for you between like AUM fees and planning fees? Right now, about a third is AUM fees, and about two thirds are planning fees. So then, help us understand, like, what do you what do you do for the for the financial planning fee that 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 you charge, or right? just particularly for people that don't have assets yet? So say you know, effectively, they're gonna they're going to pay their planning fees from from income from their bank account like that's that's a a not small financial planning fee to pay particularly when the majority of the clients you're working with have not had an advisor before have not paid an advisor before and I think you'd even said like maybe the first person in their family to ever have an advisor. So it's not like someone else in their family is saying like oh yeah it's time for you to get an advisor cuz you're you're doing really well like there is no model for them. <laughs> In their, mm-hmm. in their family and life experience to ever have an advisor and pay thousands of dollars mm-hmm. to a financial advisor. So so I, I so I guess I'm wondering like just what do you do for this planning fee upfront and ongoing to to be able to explain and demonstrate the value? Sure. Yes. Yeah. So I'll take you through the initial onboarding process and then you know the planning that we do throughout the year. So you know, our first meeting, we spend at least an hour, maybe two hours just going over their goals, their short-term goals, intermediate-term goals, long-term goals, and getting that cemented. For many of our clients, too, I think it's important to share that they are probably one of their more successful people in their family. And so when there's financial needs in their family, people tend to come to them. Mm-hmm. So we talk a lot about financial support to family members, we talk about, you know, many of their parents don't have long-term care insurance or don't have significant investments. So we spend a lot of time talking about what is the expectation of supporting your parents and how does that, how is that part of your plan? So we think very broad. For every single client, we do a budget. You know, we always say it's not what you earn, it's what you keep. And we go through the needs, wants, and savings allocations. We then find opportunities to how they can save more, how they, if they do have student loan debt, how they can pay it down more quickly. And then for every client, we do a full financial plan and an executive summary. And, you know, from a corporate perspective, we look at the plan or look at their financial position from a strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats perspective. And then we outline the next steps that we're going to do over the next 12 months on how we're going to address them. So for many of them, you know, there are some basic components that are not in there. So, you know, many of them, some of them have small kids and they don't have life insurance. 
we primarily do term insurance. Just so you know, Michael, <laughs> I always tell Jeff Brown from NAFA, like I sell term insurance, <laughs> um, right? I, I do believe families, young families should have that. Many and, of them, and meaning like your licensed insurance agents and actually doing the, the term yep. insurance internally? Yeah. So we work with, uh, you know, a third party to help us through the applications and process, but we do primarily um, offer term insurance, like term insurance and long-term care insurance, um, depending upon the age. But those are the primarily the insurances that we offer at our firm. And who are you working with just to help make that happen when you're, when you're an RIA structure? I work with FIG Marketing out of um, North Carolina okay. and I work with our team and they help us through the process and the applications and support to get our clients, um, you know, the, the insurance that they need. And so I, I want to go further in the, the the planning process, but I do feel compelled to to ask here. I mean, obviously, like not not news. There's a lot of discussion in the industry these days around fee based, fee only. You know, mm-hmm. participating insurance commissions or not. So, like, would just love to hear more of like how how do you think about that industry debate and divide when you've you know like you, you obviously made a conscious decision to say we do want to write the insurance and and participate in the compensation for that. So just help us understand more of what you guys were thinking about and going through in in making that decision. Yeah, I think it was more so, Michael. Initially, there wasn't an inclination to do insurance and to outsource it. But initially, when I did outsource insurance and they got to an insurance professional, they would then begin to cross-sell products that were not suitable for my clients. And then I had to back away from that. Right. I would say, well, no, you don't need whole life. Like you're not even (laughs) contributing the max to your retirement plan. Like you don't really need like you don't need a whole life policy. Let's talk about cash value and how cash value, you know, accumulates. And, you know, I felt like I was I was back ending myself (laughs) when I would say, oh, talk to this insurance company. And they would sometimes not always position the right product for them. And so I would say, Michael, it was more of intentional from a control perspective, right? So like, I know, you know, a 20-year term is, is what you need. One of the things I do, Michael, I don't even ask what the commission is. I really don't care. I'm getting it from my client for what's best for them, right? And a 20-year, I just did a 20-year term policy for someone who was like 42, and it's like $200 a year is their premium, you know? So for me, it, I'm not getting a lot of compensation for it. Yeah, the, 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 the money is not in term insurance for young people. If you've ever yeah. been an insurance, if you've ever been an insurance agent, that's, that's not where the money is. Exactly. So insurance is not really a meaningful financial contribution to our firm, but it was more of the control to make sure they're getting the right insurance that they need. And so just relative to working with an insurance company and, or like what, working with other agents, insurance companies and having them try to, you know, cross sell things that you weren't necessarily a fan of them cross selling, just like, how is it different with FIG? Like, how does FIG work and what, what makes that structure different for you? Well, FIG is more back office support. They don't really interface or position products to the client. So once me and the client identify the right insurance product, they do the back-end processing to get it, you know, the application, to get it approved, to issue. They're not speaking to the client where they're not part of the sales process, I should say. They're more, you know, once we've identified the right product, they support on the back end. 
And I guess just I've got to ask, like, do you know, do the questions ever come up with clients around commissions versus fees? Does the you know the dynamic of not being able to say your fee only ever become a concern for you guys? No. One of the things we we because we're all our lead advisors are CFP professionals, we lead with we're fiduciaries. And, you know, we do what's in the best interest of you, not for us. And I'm very transparent with my clients that you know, this is an insurance product. I do receive a commission. I don't, I, tell, I don't even know what the commission is because I don't even ask because I, I don't want the conflict cycle, right? But I tell them I'll receive a small percentage based upon the sale of this insurance product. And because to your point, 95% of what I do is term, that compensation is very minimal. Right. And they tend not to have any issues. I think the issue would be more if we were selling whole life, IULs, right? where that commission structure is much more substantial and that could potentially pose more of a conflict for us. So take me back to the 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 planning process again. You said so the the first meeting is is kind of an hour or two going over goals. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm just wondering can you talk more about what like what is setting goals mean in the context of your clients and the folks that you're working with, right? The the traditional industry view is, you know, there's education goals for kids and there's retirement goals. I guess I'm just wondering, like, for clients you're working with and the age you're working with, like, is that still the primary focus of setting goals as you're going through a goal-setting meeting, or is it different? It's it's different. I think that this generation, you know, one of the things a lot of them are planning for are sabbaticals. They say, in 10 years, I want to be able to take off work for six months. How can I do that? I want to transition. I don't want to be in corporate America forever. At some point, I want to be a consultant. How do we plan for that? A lot of them have would like to retire early and have second careers and say, I'm doing this now because I make a lot of money, but I don't want to do this forever. This is my passion. And how do I save enough money by the time I'm 45 or 50? So my second career in my last 10 to 15 years is doing what I love. So it's very... <laughs> Out of curiosity, I just got to ask, like, I, I want to retire and have a second career doing what I love. Like, mm-hmm. feels not retiree Like, is yes. that a... Do we, do we need <laughs> yeah. a different word for this? It is. It's, it's funny. I, I was at the FPA retreat um, earlier this year, and this was... Uh, I forget the gentleman's name... He's a PhD, and he was talking about the the notion of retirement is very different than it used to be, right? It isn't, I'm 65, and now I'm going to just hang out and, you know, play golf and play tennis and all day, right? There's a desire that we should call it something else. It's like my my next career or my transitioning phase. But many of them do not want hard stop retirement. They want to keep their minds active, their bodies active, and, you know, have a much different view of what I'm going to, I'm doing air quotes now, Mike, what retirement looks like. So a lot of our planning is how do you plan for that next phase, right? You know, we have clients who make, you know, three, $400,000 a year. They do well. Well, how much do you need to save to be able to stop at 50 and then perhaps be an art teacher Mm. and still live the same lifestyle that you're living now, right? Same kind of home, same vacations, but we're saving enough for you to maintain that next phase for 10 to 15 years 
potentially before you fully retire. So a lot of our planning is much different. And a lot of it too is, you know, we have individuals who are being really proactive with, you know, planning for their parents. You know, many of their parents, I'll say, Michael, they don't have any retirement assets. They live on Social Security. And they're walking into it eyes wide open that like, I'm going to probably need to financially support my parents at some point. So I need to not only plan for my second you know, phase or my retirement, but how do I help support my parents too? So we have clients where actually the children, Michael, are looking to get long-term care policies. Or if they can't, if it's too cost prohibitive, how do they save and think about putting money away to really help their parents in retirement? So meaning like, the children aren't buying long-term care insurance policy on themselves. They're buying long-term care insurance on mom and dad because they're hoping that'll be cheaper than otherwise paying for mom and dad's care because it's coming at them either way. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So out of curiosity, like what, what planning software or tools are you using to do this? Because most traditional planning software I don't exactly think of as the, here's a great tool to plan for a six-month sabbatical 10 years from now. We use Right Capital, but you have to be very creative. So if you look at the goals, it isn't the traditional goal of education for children and retirement. We have like six to seven simultaneous goals happening in their plan. And we have cash flow events happening in their plan. So it's a much different planning technique than what, than what is traditional. And then you... You said every single client, you you go through a budgeting process as well. So I, I know for, well, I say for a lot of clients, I think also for a lot of advisors, like budgeting can be a bad word <laughs> unto itself. So mm-hmm. like, what does that budgeting process look like for you? How do you do this? So we actually do an Excel spreadsheet. I am happy that Right Capital has that new budgeting interface, but it does, it's not as specific as we like it to be. But we use an Excel spreadsheet and we go through, you know, everyone's budget. And what we typically do is what we say this is that a budget is a representation of your values. What you spend your money on is what you value. So there are certain things like your mortgage, your rent, right? Those are requirements. But we dig deeper into the spending of eating out, traveling, clothing, entertainment, because for many people, this is new wealth, right? And new wealth and they want to gather things or, you know, gather a lot of experiences, which is great, but they can be impediments to building wealth, right? And so we spend some time and we help them prioritize and we ask them, what brings you joy? And what brings you joy should be where you spend your money from a budgeting perspective outside of your, you know, your your basic necessities and, and needs. And we walk them through that process. So I guess help me understand, like, what's What's in the spreadsheet that you can't do in right capital? Just what what is it from a tools end that's driving you to build your own your own spreadsheet? So there's like the miscellaneous budget. I'm going to say the section that kind of is a catch-all, but we we break out savings by emergency savings, long-term savings, additional retirement savings. We add in things like um, financial support for parents, financial support for others and their family if they have to provide. So there are, there are different lines that we have there that are not typically in right capital. And so are you going through an exercise then of like tracking and monitoring whether their spending meets their budget or is this mostly from a more prospective planning and just to help figure out where they want to be more intentional about their spending? 
where to be more intentional about their spending and then finding additional opportunities to save. Okay. And then for, for a lot of them too, it's, you know, what we've seen is there's a lot of autopilot happening where they have subscriptions or they're making purchases and they don't realize what's happening because they work very demanding professional careers. And we'll sit and go through and say, do you know, like, why do you have eight streaming services? <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> like, what's happening here? And not that it's necessarily um, <laughs> wrong with eight, eight streaming services, but I know how many hours you work. Like, you can't even have the time to actually be watching eight streaming services. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So we sit through and we walk through that budget and we, we, we begin to help prioritize or identify things that they may not even know they're spending money on. So we'll, ha- we'll have them pull their statements or things like that so we can help formulate what their real budget is now versus what that budget should be. And then does that get revisited in future years? Like they, they have to pull out their dollars again and see where it went or like you use technology to see where it went. Like, I guess I'm just trying to understand, is there, is there like an ongoing budget tracking process, you know, sort of budget budgeted versus actuals, or mm-hmm. this is primarily an intentionality exercise at the beginning of the planning process? It's intentionality, but it's also, it formulates our savings goals and our debt pay down goals. Okay. So we know if you're meeting your budget, if you're paying down your debt at the amount that we agreed upon or you're saving at the amount we agreed upon. So if we say, based upon your um, budget, you should be saving $3,000 a month. If you're not saving $3,000 a month, what happened? Okay. Because we're all about automating savings, automating debt pay down. And so we have transparency, you know, you know as you know, through Right Capital and the links to see, are your balances right. decreasing, you know, is your are your savings or investment accounts increasing? And so that is our check that we do. And then one thing I'll mention is that we also do, I'm not sure if it's non-traditional, Michael, you know, I don't know what all advisors do, but, you know, we even help our clients when they buy their homes, like we'll, you know, research mortgage companies or look at rates, we'll help them refinance and say, should you refinance to a 30 or should you go to a 15? Maybe not as much now, now that rates are, yeah. I think. At, at back back when you could refinance. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I, I, I will say we probably refinanced or helped over 30% of our clients last year refinance their mortgages. We connected them to a broker. We made sure it happened. We stayed on top of them to make sure they did it. Because again, these are busy professionals. So sometimes you have to stay in front of them to say, hey, you know, the refinance rate is 2.75. We think you should do this now, right? We don't want this window to pass us. You know, we even help our clients when they negotiate and get new um, jobs. So they'll come to us with their offer letter and say, what do you think? And one thing is, we have a lot of clients who work in tech or similar industries. We know what the compensation is. So we'll say, oh, you know what? Based upon others I've seen at this company, perhaps you should ask for more equity. Let's talk about that. Mm. So something that is more non-traditional, but we help them negotiate. So like one of my clients, like I paid for my fee already three times because we helped her negotiate a higher compensation at her new firm. So take me back now to the, just like the planning process part. So you said like first meeting is going over goals and setting you short, intermediate, long-term goals. What's next from the the process? And like, I guess what what's the next meeting or what what comes after the first meeting before you get to the second meeting? 
Yeah. So first is goals. The second is budgeting. The third is when we start to draft the financial plan where we'll talk through here's, you know, how much you need to save to be able to retire at this age. You know, we'll also during the budgeting, I'm sorry, we'll gather their, you know, investment state statements, asset allocations, things like that. And then we begin to formulate what their target investment allocation is, their targeted spending. You know, they may say we want to retire at 50 or I would say transition at 50, we could, we may say that's probably not feasible. Maybe it's 55. So we do all of that in the initial plan. And then once we deliver the initial plan, which is typically in the third meeting, we then begin to work on some of those action items. So if it's a young family, we'll say you don't have an estate plan enforced. You don't have a, a power of attorney or there's no trust or will. One of the first things we'll do is we'll work with our network of estate attorneys and begin to get that in motion. Or we'll look and see, do they have estate planning as a, as a service under legal benefits through their employer? And we'll walk through them with that. If they don't have insurance and they're a young family, more specifically, we'll help them procure that. If they have too much cash on hand and it's not properly allocated, they're aggressive or they're too conservative, we'll begin to modify their investment allocations. And so typically in the first year, we're meeting with our clients at least six to seven times in that first year. Typically, we then will then move to probably every quarter as we work through it. And then the goal is to meet with them about two to three times a year after that. And when you queue up and deliver a plan in the third meeting, like what's a financial plan for you? Like what are you delivering versus, I don't know, like showing on right capital on a screen versus uh, uh, doing or following up with afterwards? Like what's what's the plan for you in that plan delivery meeting? So I like right capital, but it's a very big, large plan. <laughs> and most clients don't have the time to read through it. So we, we do an executive summary that we layer on. And the executive Meaning like sum- you you print a right capital output, but then attach your own executive summary to the front of it? Correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so we'll highlight the key aspects of the plan. So, you know, there, there are, of course, things that you do pull out of right capital, like everyone gets the retirement projection or the investment allocation, but then we'll highlight certain things that we think that, you know, need the highest level of attention. And we'll talk through that in the executive summary. Okay. And then what does the ongoing look like for you? The ongoing is making sure they're meeting their progress in terms of debt pay down or savings, making sure their allocations are meeting their needs. But one of the things that, you know, I had this vision of like, oh, you know, once you do this, it's kind of, you're just kind of coasting along. But as I mentioned, one thing about this generation, Michael, is that they're very transient, (laughs) right? Uh So there's always something happening, right? They got a new job or they're moving or buying a new house or something is happening with them. Or, you know, last year, a lot of companies changed their executive compensation and their vesting or cliff, you know, so then it was going back and rerunning, you know, analysis of now you have more equity compensation coming your way and how are we going to best allocate that? So it, it, there tends to be a lot of things happening with them that we're always staying engaged. And of course, one of the things too, is that because we also are adding value because we do do taxes for many of our clients. 
you know, we spend a lot of time, we use holistic plan. So we spend a lot of time doing tax planning and tax analysis and scenarios and tax preparation because when you do have equity compensation, it does make tax planning a little bit more critical um, than like a regular salary or bonus structure. And so we, we, we have a lot of key touch points along the way. And so for clients that you're working with where, as you'd said earlier, like this is this may be their their first time hiring a financial advisor, maybe the first time anyone in their family's hired a financial advisor. I'm I'm really curious to to hear more of like just how do you explain the value of financial planning? How do you explain the value of your services in a four to six thousand dollar fee? Like what is that what does that conversation look like with a prospect where you're trying to explain for the first time like wh- why they would pay an advisor all mm-hmm. this money when they've never hired an advisor before and nobody in their family's ever hired an advisor before? Mm-hmm. So we use a lot of analogies, right? This sounds so cliche, Michael, but like, why do people hire personal trainers? Why do people hire nutritionists, right? You know what you need to do to lose weight, work out more, eat healthier, eat less, right? It, it's pretty straightforward. But why do personal trainers and just exist? Because we need accountability. We need someone that is going to help continue to motivate and coach us along. And we say that you are in a very demanding, lucrative career. You need to focus your time on building your career and earning the wealth. And we're here to help make sure that that wealth is going to the best place for you and your family. And um, you don't have the time to look at the markets or look at potentially, you know, should I refinance now or refinance later, you know, we're a team of individuals that have the expertise to do that. So when you go home from work, you can focus on relaxing with your family and your time. And then we do all of the financial aspects and planning for you. I like that. I saw any other just uh, uh, analogies or other scenarios or ways that come up in how you explain that? That's pretty much it. You know, one of the things that I, I am seeing is that there is a model where people are uh, obtaining coaches. I'm not sure if you've seen this, Michael, right? I've seen more and more people hire business coaches or motivational coaches, right? People are spending a lot of money on that. (laughs) Yep. And so I think people are realizing that, you know, you can't do everything yourself. This generation more particularly is they're highly motivated, but they also believe in self-care, and taking time off and enjoying life. And so we're here to say that that's our our job is to make sure you can do that. Just as you hire a business coach or a fitness trainer or something like that, we're also part of your team. And, you know, we're part of your self-care. And that typically works. But, you know, to your point, everyone doesn't say yes immediately. I had a, a prospect I had a year ago, right? And to your point, Michael, he heard the fee and he bulked. And he said, I can do this myself. And I talked to him on Monday and he was like, I didn't do anything myself last year. (laughs) He's like, nothing you talked about happened. I was like, Mm -hmm. okay. He's like, I'm I'm back. I think I I, I will pay the fee because I'm not doing this myself, right? I, I thought I could do it, but I couldn't do it. Very cool. So a year later, a year later, he came back. Yes. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. So is there anything else that's different around serving communities of color? I mean, I think you'd, you'd said earlier, you nearly 90% of your 
of your clients are are people of color. And so I guess I'm just wondering is like is there is there something else different around serving communities of color either in in you know what what you do and how you're explaining planning or just why it is that you are working with and attracting a clientele that's 90% people of color? Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things I talk about is there is a difference in working with communities of color and I I, I call it cultural competency, right? where there are certain things in different cultures that are expectations financially or how they think about planning. So like one of the examples I give is many of our clients are Black, right? And my family, Michael, came from Augusta, Georgia, right? Baptist. And tithing is a big part of our community. And I remember I was talking to a white advisor and he had a, a Black client come to him and they were not saving what they should have been saving for retirement. And his first recommendation was to reduce their charitable giving to church. Michael, <laughs> you know, knowing what I know about our culture, that cannot be your lean-in, right? Tithing is something that's very rooted in the, in the you know, for, for many households. It, it is considered to be a necessity. It isn't a want. And so when you're talking to certain communities, you know, I... I talk about tithing. I, I talk about, I understand their value and I walk them through how we could rearrange the tithing in a different way, but still meet the need, but not get rid of tithing altogether. So it's certain things like that, that we understand the culture to know how to broach what can be a very sensitive topic from a planning perspective, but not, I would say, turn them off. And our recommendations are, are, are how we present to them. Are there other examples like this for other folks who are listening who maybe aren't aren't familiar with you know, some of the differences in cultural competencies? Like, are there other examples you can give us of just differences between the community you serve and how advisors maybe traditionally show up in in the context of you know? Well, you could just save for more for retirement by you know donating less and tithing less. Like, no, eh, that's not going to fly in this community. Another one is like group association. So a lot of my clients are members of sororities and fraternities. And so there's a budget just for that, Michael, going to another different line, right? You know, many Black sororities and fraternities, it's not just something you do in undergrad. It's a lifelong commitment, right? They continue to pay dues to sororities and fraternities. They fundraise, they travel, right? Like that is part of the community and that relationship. And so for us, you know, again, from a planning perspective, I'm not going to say you can't go to the Delta Sigma Theta convention in Atlanta that was here last year, right? But we talk about making compromises. So perhaps if this is really important to you, we take away another vacation, but we don't go there and pull back because it's something that is very rooted in our community. So help us understand now how your firm came together, your your partners came together. You know, as, as mentioned at the beginning, you know, you 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 have an entire team of black CFP professionals, of which there are well, unfortunately not a lot in the country. Mm-hmm. Very, very few firms that have multiple black CFPs who've come together to formulate a firm. So would love to hear more of just like the creation story and journey of of how did the firms come together? How did all of you come together to formulate a firm? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll start from the beginning. I actually uh, did a panel discussion in 2000, I think 19 or 20, I can't recall. And I had the opportunity, it was a panel for Black CFP women to talk about planning. 
And um, on that panel with me was my partner, Shardaya Ages. And we began talking after the panel conversation. She was in Atlanta at the time I was in Charlotte. And we actually became friends. And we stayed in touch. And she was part of my, my network. And when I moved to Atlanta in 2020, we you know spent more time together and connected. And we talked about the kind of firm that we wanted to work at. We weren't necessarily happy with the structures of the firms where where we were currently residing. And so we um, talked and Shardaya brought in her colleague, Emma Folks, and again, a CFP professional residing in Atlanta. And then I brought in my colleague, Brian McKinney. We worked together at my prior firm. And we also had conversations about, you know, our last firm, it wasn't what we desired in terms of how we were serving clients and how decisions were being made. So we decided to say, you know what, we, we do think it's time to make that move into transition to something where we had a little bit more control over. And we just slowly kind of built together, Michael, because we just were a part of our networks. We also have another advisor who, who will be joining on, on board um, later this year. But once we all decided that there was a common theme that we all, you know, were not happy where we were, we, we wanted something a little bit different. And I think at this point, too, we all had been in the RA space for a couple of years, right? We, we knew a little bit more about how things work. And, you know, we know the downside of a failed partnership or a failed agreement. So we came to this a little bit more with, with more intention, than we did previously. So last year, starting in the fall, we would spend Saturday afternoons on phone calls with each other, talking about things like what kind of firm did we want? What is our investment philosophy? What fees do we want to charge? Who should our target demographic be? And even more importantly, Michael, why we're even doing this, right? One of the things we all came to the conclusion is like we could all go to bigger firms and make more money right? Why are we doing this as an RIA? Why are we putting this sacrifice together and building? And we even brought in, you know, an outside consultant to even facilitate some of these conversations to make sure we all were aligned with the same vision and mission of the organization. And having that and, and knowing the why behind why we're here has made this partnership just so much more meaningful we are much more collaborative as a team because we, we got the foundation right in the beginning. So before we left our respective firms and came together in February and March of this year, we were all aligned months prior. So I'm fascinated by this of just hammering out some of these details. So I, I guess I've, I've got a few questions. So one, just can you talk to us a little bit more of what were the areas that you wanted to cover and that you were talking through? I mean, I think you said a few of like target demographic we're going to pursue, fees we're going to charge, sort of philosophy of, I guess, investments and planning and 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 what we're offering to clients. So what like what else was on the, hey, we got to talk about this before we before we get going? Yeah, sure. We talked about how we will make decisions. We talked about equity. Each of us did come together with different books of business, some larger, some smaller, but it was more of a result of more recency in the RIA space. So those who had been in the RIA space longer had bigger books, which makes sense. Those were fairly right. new. But we all came with, you know, 10, 15 years of experience in this profession. We all came with 
you know, our CFP designations, we all came in with wonderful, well-established networks. So we decided that just because you came in with a book that wasn't of size does not mean we think you should have less equity. We just handled it, the book with an asset purchase agreement, right? And, that, and that's how we're going to resolve it. But we think all of us equally have a lot of contribution um, that we can provide to this firm. And particularly, as you know, Michael, when you're starting off, you're not just an advisor, right? There's someone who has to be the um, liaison with compliance and our compliance consultant. There's someone who has to work with marketing and determining our tech stack. So we use we use your documents, Michael. So thank you for that. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> right. There's someone who has to primarily focus on building out the investment models in it and working with our investment providers and liaison to make sure we have all the information we need. So we knew that each of us would play multiple roles in the beginning of this firm and making sure that everyone was valued for that. So, so I want to make sure I understand the the structure of how you brought this together because I think it's, it's really interesting. So so it sounds like the, the end goal was if four of us are coming together as the primary leaders and partners of the firm, like we want to we wanna own it evenly and we want to be 25% partners each. And so then we have to figure out who needs to buy in or sell in pieces of their book if someone had a, a, a bigger, smaller client base than the others so that you can all feel that you're equal in building something together from this point forward. Exactly. Exactly. So if someone, I guess I don't know what math is, but like so, someone's coming to the table with a $15 million client base and someone's coming to the table with a $5 million client base, like the five, the five person needs to buy $5 million from the 15 person so that you're effectively 10 and there's an essentially like an, a, a partial internal sale transaction so that you you have the equivalent financial stakes going forward. That's correct. Yes. And so who puts that together? <laughs> like did you <laughs> like did you hire an outside lawyer to draft agreements and like an outside firm to do the valuation and figure out what the deal and like an outside bank to finance it? Like how, how did mm-hmm. you actually make that happen? Yeah, so we work we're working with an attorney actually uh, my RIA lawyer um, out, of, out of Alpharetta, Georgia. And they're working, they work through our, you know, agreements. We're still, we're waiting to do the asset purchase agreement um, to the fifth person comes on board, but we have, we get the structure kind of slowly being built out because we want each person to have the same valuation date for all partners coming on board. Okay. They're working on, you know, the operating agreement, the buy-sell agreement. So we engage an attorney for the, for those documents. Okay. And then how, like, how do you value this? That's where we got help from them. And also one thing, you know, I'm not sure if you mentioned this, Michael, but part of my role with the CFP board, I've had the pleasure to meet with very successful RAs, um, Uh owners and founders. And I've talked to them and said, how did you value? What sheets did you use? What tools did you use? So we've been able to utilize that to properly value our books of business. So what did you like what did you end up using? I mean, did you, you know, take like industry standard valuation multiples and apply them? Did you get a referral to a particular firm that that like will, you know, do a valuation process for you? Yeah. So luckily I won't disclose, but we have someone who in their in their career valued firms and okay. said, Hey, you guys are small enough. You don't need this huge firm to come in and pay them this money to do it. And so he actually shared with us the spreadsheets and the and the um, target multipliers for us to okay. utilize. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. So, so you got a, you got a spreadsheet from, from him just to dial in the number a little bit more accurately. So at least everybody feels like they're getting a, a fair shake number. And then how does this get financed? So we're, we're financing it from um, business cash flow. So we're, we can't pay it all up front, but we're going to pay it over per year. So it'll be um, paid out of cash flow over okay. a certain term. Yeah. And and how long are you planning to stretch out the term? We hope to um, have it done within four years. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Very cool. And so and so the idea and goal really is like we want to come together. I was gonna say like the the four of us for a quarter each. I guess it's gonna end up being the the five of you when your fifth person adds in for one one fifth each. And the internal asset purchase was how you got comfortable with. We're bringing different books to the table, but we want to be equal building together going forward. Exactly. Yeah. We we wanted to have that one firm approach. And so we thought the, you know, just so it isn't my book, your book, I think the asset purchase agreement will resolve that. And so we can start collectively together with the new firm once that document is cemented. And so then talk to us about, you said you used a facilitator. So mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm wondering like, well, first of all, just who, 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 who was that if you're, if you're willing to share and like why, I mean, where, where did that come from? Especially if you were Sounds like otherwise feeling like everybody was getting along really well and it was going really well. So who is the facilitator and and why did you have a facilitator? Well, we had it was someone in our network, one of our partners, um, their spouse actually is a facilitator. That's what they do professionally. Okay. So Fantastic. it was very easy. I was like, very easy. And I know him well. He's a wonderful guy. Clinton Ages is his name. And, you know, he was able to kind of talk through and pause and ask questions. And we had visuals and we walked through the exercise together. But it was really important to have that there because he was able to intervene and bring us back on focus. You know, sometimes when you're working to collectively together, you can easily go on tangents or go down rabbit holes. And it was really important for someone to come in and lift us up and make sure that we're addressing the key questions and the key priorities for the partnership. So it was immensely helpful. Um, And one of the things, you know, even my colleague, Liz Miller, um, she runs a firm summit out of New Jersey. And, you know, when I told her, you know, Liz, I'm going to start a new firm. And to your point, Michael, she said, you need a coach, you need a facilitator. Mm. And she's like, that's one thing that it is worth the money because if you don't have someone that's going to ask the hard questions, if you don't have someone that's going to push you, you're just delaying the inevitable, right? You're going to avoid it. And then by the time that issue arises, it is has festered. There's emotions tied and it's going to be hard to resolve. And so her recommendation to me was you need to have someone to be there to facilitate these conversations and just make sure you have the really hard discussions up front. So what were the hard discussions for you? The hard discussions were, what about joining the firm? What do you specifically want from this firm? And what control do you need? And I think that was an important question. There are certain people that need to have control over all aspects of an organization or certain parts, but you had to be real with yourself of what are the things that you really care about and don't care about, and you're willing to delegate the decision-making to someone else on the team. The other question was, what what does success and what does success mean financially and client-wise for for the firm? Hmm. It's easy to articulate financials, but 
what does success mean for our clients and what experience we want them to have and making sure that we were all on board. I had never been asked that question before, Michael. <laughs> so I was like, oh, that's a good question, right? So those were some of the those are some of the things that were brought to the table. And also just, you know, getting the vision and mission and what are the outcomes and then why are we here? And we had to be really honest about how did we get here, right? There were there are five people who are you know, pretty successful in terms, of, in terms of our time in the profession, the books that we've been able to build. But why are we here and what's keeping us here? And what can keep me at this firm? And I don't think I've ever really been asked that question before. Like, what's keeping you? What, what can we do to keep you here? And, and, and why are you doing this every day? And I think knowing the why for your partners is immensely important. They should know my why and I, I need to know their why too. Knowing the why for your partners is immensely important. So share with us a little bit more of your journey through the industry. You know, you've mentioned like you are a CFP professional. You you have 10 plus years of experience at, as did your partners coming to the table as well. So share with us a little bit more like how you got started in the industry and what, what the journey has been to get to this point where you were la- launching a firm with, with four partners and going through these wonderfully facilitated conversations. <laughs> where, where did it begin? Sure. So... I actually, I went to college at Penn State. Um, I had dreams and grandeur, Michael, of being a public relations executive uh, when I was in college. But I I, I took a part-time job working at PNC Bank. And that's when I was first exposed to this profession. And I interned where I had the opportunity to work with, you know, the advisor in the branch and learned a little bit more about what he did. And so that's what really piqued my interest into the profession. And so being from Philadelphia, I decided to take a role at Vanguard, you know, okay. and I, I started good, in a good, good, you know, local firm if you've got to get started in financial services. Exactly. Um, I took an entry level role, Michael. I was working in participant services, talking to 401k clients. And got my Series 6 and 63, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I loved learning about the, the industry. And then from there, I just continued to move up. I became a team leader in our call center. I then decided to make a switch. Um, so I worked institutional asset management. I worked with nonprofits, so universities, hospitals, and nonprofits in the Southeast region on behalf of Vanguard. My book of business was about $3 billion in, um, in assets. And it was a great time. Bad time looking at the time, but great time looking back. I was in that role during 2008. Um, when the okay. I was going to say, like, what, what, what made it bad? But yeah, that would that would make it bad. Like managing, <laughs> hand, handling institutional uh, dollars during the financial crisis, like that, that would be unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, there were some long nights where you know there was one client we had, Michael, in my book, that their only liquidity was at Vanguard because they got they used their operating reserves for some other asset class that we won't talk about, but. Uh-huh. So I learned a lot about risk and asset correlations and more proper, you know, operating asset investment management. And also you probably remember at the time, you know, 
asset correlation went to zero, right? At the point yep. for many for many institutions. So it helped me build that framework of how do you build portfolios and how do you structure them to mitigate some of that risk going forward. And because of that expertise in investment management, um, Vanguard offered me an opportunity to move to Charlotte and work in the ultra high net worth segment. So Vanguard's clients that have $20 million or more in investable assets I would work with them and, you know, reviewing their portfolios, estate planning, trust planning, and working with our team. I was basically the quarterback and a team of individuals would support me and our clients. It was then that I obtained my CFP designation. You know, one thing I will say, Vanguard prides itself in supporting the designation and the the experience it adds to professionals and So I did that and I learned a lot about how ultra high net worth clients, how they earn their wealth, how they maintain their wealth, how they pass on their wealth. It it was very enlightening for me. But a lot of my experience there led me to where I am now, Michael, because I probably met with hundreds of families in that role. I would travel across the country. I was a road warrior um, because, as you know, Vanguard has more office locations. There's no walk-in center. So... I, w- I would hop on the plane, I would have lunch, have dinner, meet with clients in their office and talk about their investment portfolios, et cetera. But in the entire time I was in that role, Michael, I did not meet with one Black client. Mm. And I was in that role for probably, it was over three years, maybe three and a half years. And so that disturbed me, right? I'm like, why mm-hmm. doesn't anyone look like me? Like it was easy to find Camila at a client event. <laughs> And so that's when I started to think a little bit more forward about how can I help solve this, right? I have all this knowledge. I think I had like five licenses at that point in my CFE designation. At some point, I want to help communities that more, look more like me be in these rooms. And so I was very intentional in my next few steps and roles that I, I took. I led a sales team that sold personal advisor services at Vanguard. And then I left Vanguard and spent a very short stint at Dimensional Fund Advisors in their Charlotte office. I chose Dimensional because, as you know, probably many of your listeners know that they're really known for their mutual funds and products, but also for practice management. They work with very successful financial advisors on things like building models and client messaging. So I had a wonderful opportunity to sit and work and see very successful financial advisors and how they built their practice. And then in 2019, I left Dimensional. I started working for LPL first with a broker, with a firm, Rutledge Wealth Partners, which is an LPL-affiliated firm. You probably know this, Michael. I was very green. LPL is great, but if you don't have a book of business, (laughs) some Mm -hmm. of the fee structure can be a little bit cost prohibitive if you're building your book. So I decided to switch and move to the RIA route where I can build my book a little bit more quickly. The costs are a little bit lower. And um, as you mentioned- just outright building from scratch was actually cheaper in the in the RA environment. Yes, it is. Definitely. Definitely. Which I think is interesting. They just I feel like the perception from a lot is broker dealers give you all this infrastructure that you can use so you don't have to build it and it's more expensive if you want to go out on your own and hang your own shingle. So like what was what was different in your experience? It was different. Um, you know, they have monthly fees that you pay. And then to work typically with a broker dealer, the split is much different. You take less of your compensation. So with your yep. 
monthly maintenance. And then with the split, sometimes the compensation isn't what it should be. Okay. And so I think they're a great organization, but I think, you know, I've talked with them about that. Um, but I think it's great for someone who's a little bit like, I think if I were to go there now, I would have a much different experience. Right, right. Uh, now that I have a book, right? And it, it would be probably less expensive in some ways now that I have, you know, more recurring revenue. But for someone starting out, it was very, very challenging. Because you're you're paying you're paying monthly platform fees and technology access fees and such, and if you're building your own from scratch as an RA, you like literally only have to buy the exact things that you need to buy, which is which is less expensive. Exactly, and the other thing that I knew long term that I did want to eventually support clients in getting into more alternative investments. Things like private equity, um, which is known like more values-based investing and startups and things like that. And of course, as you know, with broker-dealer, you can't do that. It's considered to be selling away. Right. And so, so if there's ever a time for me to make a switch, I should probably do it now, <laughs> right? Before I have a bigger book, it's just more cumbersome to do so and, and, and to make that shift. So I worked with, you know, an, uh, an RIA um, based out of D.C. for a couple of years that's where I really built up my book. But I left them in, in February of this year. I decided that I wanted to build a practice that was a little bit more focused on communities of color, that was more holistic in nature. And so that's when we started Collective Wealth Partners um, in February. Cool. Very cool. So what, what surprised you the most about building your own advisory business? How hard you would work. <laughs> I will say uh, the sales process was a little bit different uh, in, in me bringing and aggregating clients. I, I thought, in my impression, I thought it would be it would be a little easier than what it was. One of the things that I, I didn't realize is that it's hardest to get your first ten clients, mm-hmm. or I would say twenty clients. But then once you work with individuals and they have a good experience with you, then the referrals start to roll in, and then the sales process becomes much easier because they have a recommendation from a trusted source. But getting my first 10 to 20 was immensely challenging, um, but I did it. The second is just the administrative aspects of it. And and I can clearly see now why we have groups like, you know, your, your firm and XYPN and the networks, because just understanding compliance is huge. Understanding all the technology and the interactions is huge. And then just keeping up with the profession, right? Just you really have to be a student of this industry to be really successful because things are just constantly changing. There's always a new asset class that someone wants to talk about. There's, you know, like, you know, there's, there's always something new. And so it's great, but it just, it, it consumes a little bit more time than I initially anticipated of being, number one, a great business person, right? Just managing the functions of a business and just even to your point, like managing QuickBooks and payroll and bank accounts and credit and then managing clients and, you know, prospecting and doing development, you know, also creating a network where you can identify and bring on new talent, right? And, you know, I have calls with all types of, you know, younger or new to the profession 
our aspiring CAP professionals. So I have to think about building a talent pipeline too. Just all those things I didn't understand properly initially, just the multitude of work it does, it, it, it requires to, build, to really build a successful practice and a practice that can live on without you. And I think that that's definitely a goal of mine and our firm is that we hope is the practice that will continue to grow and that will have and, and will build a legacy for us and our families. So what was the low point for you on this journey? The low point on this journey is at a time, you know, when I was with the, my prior firm, it was feeling that I was working extremely hard, working hard to support our clients, working hard to build a brand. And I would say not being compensated or recognized for it. And, you know, particularly as, you know, as someone that I tell my clients to advocate for themselves at work, right? Advocate for them building wealth in their workplace or in their business. And I'm coaching them on this. And then to see that the exact opposite was happening to me, (laughs) right? Mm. I felt I had to quickly, not quickly, but decidedly make a next step that I have to practice what I preach, right? And change is uncomfortable. No one likes, I'm sure, Michael, you heard, no one likes transitioning a book from one firm to another firm, right? No, and repapering, no. And repapering, like, no one clients. likes to repaper. You know, it was a really tough process. And, it, you know, it was during tax season. I mean, it was just you know, very arduous, but I had to do it because it was best for me. I had to realize what's best for me is best for my clients, right? For me to be the best advisor to them, I have to feel good. I have to feel supported and I have to make sure that there's a firm that has all the structural things in place to support them and their wealth. So that was definitely, I would say, a low point. So out of curiosity, was there a particular moment or thing or event that got you to the point of saying, we're not going to be able to figure out how to make this work. I I just have to leave and change. So mm-hmm. I know a lot of advisors, like I know a lot of advisors that are out there that you know, feel like they're in roles where they may not be fully compensated or fully recognized for the contributions they're making for the firm. And I think a lot of us like, you know, I know it, I recognize it, haven't managed to change my situation yet. Because, mm-hmm. you know, change, change is scary and uncomfortable and no one likes to repaper and all the, all the things that you just said. So, I guess I'm just wondering, like, what what was it that led you to say, but I'm like, I'm going to make a change. Like, it action is going to happen. Change is uncomfortable, but it's going to occur. Like, what what got you over that line? I would say is when my, you know, prior firm, when they weren't listening. I feel like, you know, Mike, I'm not sure if you're, you know, well, people who are married or have significant others, they typically say, you know, it's over when you stop arguing. Not because there is no conflict or tension. It's just you don't want to even exert the energy to even have the conversation. And so to me, when there was attempts to resolve or have a conversation about something and it got to the point where you're not even speaking about it meant that, you know what, it's just time for, for, you know, for us to part ways. So that's the recognition, like when when you stop arguing, you don't even want to take the time or effort anymore. Like it means you've given up on it. And if you've given up on it, like exactly you're not back from that. Exactly. Right. I mean, I have clients, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure many advisors do as well who've gone through a divorce. And that's usually the telltale sign is when the communication ends. That's when that partnership hmm. dissolves. 
at least if you're arguing or talking, you're fighting, but right. you know, you're fighting for it. Yes. But once you just stop talking, you know, it's over. And so I felt that if there wasn't, you know, an even a communication about how we can resolve it and there were no new ideas presented, it was just like, it was like Groundhog Day, like same thing. I'm like, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. You can't present the same idea five times and think, you know, it's going to change. Had to be a time to move on. But also one thing I will share this with you and, you know, particularly for a lot of women, I'll say is that sometimes and even now, Michael, I have imposter syndrome, right? Like, am I really helping my clients? Am I really what I think I think I am? And I remember one of my first clients, I was sitting in their living room because I was nervous about moving. And a client said to me, you need to start your own firm. So it was a a client who said it to you. A client said it to me. There's like, here are all the things you've done for me and my family. I don't know why you're hesitating. And for a client to tell you that, right? Uh For a client to be like, why are you still there? Like, you need to start your own thing. Like, you know, I I feel like you've you've outgrown that. That's a pretty damning statement, Michael, right? It comes from the client. (laughs) Like, if... If the client's seeing it and the client means like, oh, oh, it's that obvious, isn't it? It's that obvious, yeah. And so, I mean, at that point, you know, it was just time to make that transition and that move and and no ill will. You know, I think person's very, you know, smart. I, I wish them well. But I think one of the things that you've talked about, Michael, is ensuring that your firm aligns with your values, aligns with your mission and aligns with you in the best way you can serve clients and and having ensure that you're you are setting yourself up for success and how do you build and how you orient your firm. So, you know, looking back over the the past 15 plus years of the journey, like what do you know now that you like you wish you could go back and tell you when you were early days at, at Vanguard still getting going with your career? I wish I would have told myself to take more risk. I was very fearful of change and at times I got comfortable and I wish I could tell you know Camila 15 years ago or 10 years ago that risk is part of your growth fear is part of your growth and it'll make you a better person it'll make you a better professional to take chances on yourself in your career and so what advice would you give younger or newer advisors trying to come into the industry and be a player today? And I, and I think I'm thinking in particular of, you know, maybe BIPOC advisors looking to mm-hmm. come into the industry that I know just continue to have even more struggles and in, in getting started and finding a pathway. So like what what would be your guidance to BIPOC advisors try, trying to find their way into the industry and, and get started? Mm-hmm. One of the things I will say is for BIPOC advisors is you're not going to know it all, but one of the things I, I think is important is to do a roadmap of where you are in terms of your knowledge, your expertise, in terms of planning, in terms of sales, in terms of process orientation, investments in technology. Highlight your strengths and your opportunities, and don't be afraid to have a more circuitous career and how you develop your skills Hmm. and how you improve upon yourself. I'm a huge advocate that, you know, everything in life is not linear, right? You don't always have to go up. You can go left and go right. And sometimes taking a step back or standing still a little bit longer to build out your investment acumen, to build out your technology acumen, to build out 
how you can better work with clients and building a more firm sales process is immensely important. I know many people have dreams of entrepreneurship and want to own their own firm, but I've seen people who rushed too quickly and didn't have all the elements in place to be very successful or even like leadership, right? I would say one thing too, Michael, is when you run an advisory firm, you're a leader. And how do you develop leadership skills before you start? And and so I would say take an assessment of that and then don't be afraid to work with another RIA and learn those things or, you know, work with a big firm like a, a Vanguard or a Fidelity just to garner that and make yourself more well-rounded and then launch your RIA or launch, you know, launch your own firm or the broker dealer. Your career isn't linear and it's hard for us as BIPOC advisors, right? Our community is small, our wealth is lower. So it takes oftentimes very exceptional skills to be successful. And what can you do to help build that? So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the, the word success means very different things to different people. So I think you lived firsthand going through with your partners and the facilitator, like the why and everybody's definition of success. And so as you're now building out this successful business and have a vision for where the business goes, I'm just wondering, how, how do you define success for yourself at this point? Right now, I'm at an age or part of my career where success is how I support and nurture others. Success is leaving a legacy of individuals that I have, I can say I've supported them in their career goals and their financial goals. And I'm a contributing factor to who they are or where they are now. The moments where I get the most excited, Michael, and happiest are when people share that something we've done together, a conversation, coaching, working with them has helped them be successful and reach their goals. And for me, at this point, I've had I have many things that I want, right? I, 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 don't, I don't have an Aston Martin yet, but other than that, right, everything <laughs> I want, I have. And to me, it's really about building a legacy and, and building a, a, a legacy for others and their success. Awesome. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Camila, for sharing this and hopefully inspiring some others with this conversation on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Great. Thank you for having me, Michael. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.